You're about to join Jerry Parker, Maritz Siebert, and Niels Kostrup-Larsen on their raw and honest journey into the world of systematic investing and learn about the most dependable and consistent yet often overlooked investment strategy. Welcome to the Systematic Investor Podcast Series. Jerry Parker, Maritz Siebert, and I, Niels Kostrup-Larsen, are very excited to be back with this week's edition of the Systematic Investor Series, which is our weekly ongoing raw exploration of the world of rule-based investing, and of course, where we also take some of your questions. And um, we're back to the normal routine, so today it's good to say good morning to you, Jerry, and good afternoon to you, Moritz. Hi, Niels. Hi, Jerry. Good morning. So before um, before we press on uh, record, uh, Morris and I just returned from uh, Miami, actually. Uh, I, I returned yesterday and Morris came just right, right now, actually, this morning. And we both experienced something as we were talking. We realized that both of our flights back from the U.S. had been probably the most bumpy flight I've ever experienced. I mean, incredibly, you know, six, seven hours worth of turbulence uh, nonstop. And when you're sitting up there and it's pitch dark outside and you're thinking, you know, are these planes, are they really going to hold for stand up for this? And it kind of reminds me a little bit about, you know, trend following and what we do and where, you know, we look back and we, we, we see, uh, you know, how bumpy the ride really is. Um, yet the methodologies, uh, you know, have withstood uh, all of these events for, for so many years. But I don't know about you, uh, Moritz, what you were thinking when you were sitting up there. But for me, it certainly was uh, a little bit uh, sort of déjà vu when I, when I think about uh, what we do for a living. I wasn't thinking much. I was just trying to fall asleep. <laughs> <laughs> but good Fair analogy. enough. It's bumpy. Yeah, yes. yeah, exactly. Very bumpy. Anyways, um, obviously another interesting week Um Maybe not so many movements per se. Uh, overall, uh, I noticed that our 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 friend natural gas dropped eleven percent. So that was a bit um, that was a bit uh, you know volatile. Uh, the VIX closed down around I think sixteen. So that was the low for a few months at least. We've seen um, a lot of the financials kind of stayed within at least for the week relatively small. Uh, ranges, of course, the energy sector did well uh, overall, up sort of two, three percent on most of the energies, um, and um, and then we had uh, on the on the on the upside, and and again, I don't think any of us really traded, but it comes up on my screen, and that was lumper, yeah, you know, ten percent uh, gain uh, for the week. So, yeah, still a few things happening in in futures land for sure. Uh, not trading this, I missed it. Yeah, well, exactly. Last year it was down fifty percent, and this year it's 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 up a lot. So uh, maybe we should all start looking at lumber a bit more serious. But of course, we're here to talk about what happened in our portfolios for the week and um, and other good stuff. So why don't we come to you uh, before the jet lag sets in, Moritz? While we still have you um, right awake, tell us a little bit about your your week, other than. The social stuff that went on in in Miami. Yeah, that was good. <clears throat> that was but good. Yeah, the trading. Well, I don't want to say it was bad. It's just uh, unfortunately another uh, slight loss for the week. Not much, close to a percent, but still a loss. Um, but accompanied by uh, quite a few changes in in positions. Remember last week when we spoke? I was still saying I'm I'm pretty much short the equities across the board. That has now changed. I'm 
I have some long positions again, so it's more of a, a mixed portfolio, more short in Europe, a bit longer in, um, in the US and in Asia now. Um, energies, um, short natural gas. Yeah. And uh, got, got longer on, on, uh, on crude oil, longer on gold and silver, and much longer, believe it or not, much longer on the bonds. <laughs> yeah yeah interesting yeah a bit of things changing and uh well let's see what happens let's see what happens yeah i mean we saw some something similar we actually had a slight positive week on our side uh uh but in terms of the other things you mentioned very similar um you know poking around neutral to to the long side on a few select equity markets now uh, still short in 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 Europe as you uh, as you mentioned, um, fixed income definitely the best uh, sector for us this week. Uh, very mixed bag in in uh, currencies. A couple of ones did yes. really well. A couple of them did did pretty poorly. Um, and then there was also one or two. I think it was the Hawks, the Lean Hawks, that did well for us uh, this week. Um, and then the rest was pretty pretty quiet. Um, I agree with you on the fixed income side. I mean, it's incredible what we, we can continue to squeeze out of uh, of these low interest rates uh, still. Uh, I think in particular, JGBs did, did quite well on our side. Um, so, um, but other than that, um, not any major uh, changes to uh, positions. Um, but uh, yeah, so all in all, a, a kind of a quiet week um when when we when we tell it up uh the pnl um but with a few changes um underneath i would say mm -hmm. what about you jerry i mean you may have seen the same things in in the overall markets but of course we are always very interested in finding out how the um the um single stocks uh, are behaving yeah another good week to not be net short stocks um we have a mostly longs small not a big position uh, some of our <clears throat> stocks don't look like the s p chart and some do so we have a small short and bigger longs but overall not much commitment there so it's nice to have a <clears throat> you know sometimes have a look uh, non-committal positions until the major trend looks fairly obvious and listening to you guys, it just uh, hits home that we trade so much different. I mean, I know that um, some of the positions you have that you mentioned or new positions, I'm not even close to getting long or short those. And um, so it just shows, you know, that uh, different time frames or different ways of looking at the markets um, can produce quite a bit different temporary positions. You know, I think we'll all be on the same monster major trends, but a done plus Chesapeake investment would look really good positive expectation all around, but different ways of handling the markets and <clears throat> trading certain markets. Um, I don't think it's too late to get into lumber. I'm just looking at that chart. It looks fine. It's barely off, well, you know, kind of rallied from those lows. Um, and, uh, you know, we look at these markets in terms of uh, VAR or ATRs. And so the large numbers that you can get from uh, looking at percentages kind of can be kind of misleading in the sense that um, it's sort of turning into an almost trade, long trade for me. Uh, so it's not too late. 
but it could be one of those Hotel California markets where you can enter, but you may never leave. So <laughs> we've always got to be concerned about uh, the ability to get in and out. Indeed, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, um, yeah, and, and as you say, I mean that that's the beauty of it, right? And that's why you know, one trend follower isn't enough. I mean, you do need to to have a few of them um, because systems can be uh, quite different. And I think that you know, obviously, when you come back from a conference and you talk to a lot of investors, um, one of the things that often come up is really the return dispersion uh, among managers and and how that makes it harder for the investors to uh, figure out who to uh, who to allocate to. And of course. In, in, in sort of the good old days back in the 90s, uh, it was true, I think, that um, if you knew what John Henry or Chesapeake or Campbell or, you know, all the names done, what they were uh, for the month, you kind of knew roughly where the whole industry was going to be. But that is that is not the case anymore. Um, there's a lot more going on uh, behind the scenes, which, which is good. Uh, it shows that we are all, um, uh, you know, innovating to, to some extent. And I think it's a... It's good uh, that um, if you trend follow medium to long or and you trade a, a lot of different markets long and short, um, whatever you throw up there, it's probably going to work eventually. It has worked. And I think when we look at different time frames on our side, everything works and they make about the same amount of money. And so that's good. That's what we kind of got a very robust system. Now, not every year our system one may underperform System two, even though the parameters are unfortunately close, they have to be sort of close uh, because uh, if they're not close, it's not going to work as well. So it's kind of like the stock market where they say, you know, buy and hold, and this is the returns you get. Well, you know, as we talked last week, in a lot of countries, they can no longer say that. So it's getting narrower and narrower uh, to where maybe it's just the U.S. that they can cherry pick and say, oh, buy and hold. It makes 8% a year. And that's all you need to do. And so maybe it'll get just get down to the S&P only, and you'd have to leave out NASDAQ and Dow. I don't know. But I think uh, I'd rather be in our situation where it's hard to find something medium to long term, currencies, commodities, stocks, bonds, long, short, that doesn't do pretty well over a 20 or 30 year period. Very true. And and the other thing, I, and it's not just really model by model. Uh, um, there certainly can be differences uh, on our side between our two main uh, trend models, but but uh, also markets by markets. I mean, I think we are of the opinion that over the very long run, I mean, all markets uh, should give us the same return. Um, yet, of course, a lot of people um, tend to uh, sometimes um, just decide to exclude certain markets, maybe because they haven't performed for a few years, or you know, for other reasons, and and that's where we certainly truly believe that there's a lot of value in in um, you know in the fully diversified approach. Uh, maybe on the expense of not being able to manage, you know, five or ten billion dollars or more, but but still, if you want to have the best overall diversification, uh, you you definitely need some of these commodities, as we can see from just talking about some of the big movers uh, last week. I mean, net gas and lumber and stuff like that. I mean, there, there definitely are trends in, in, in those markets. Anything to add on your side, uh, Moritz, before we jump into um, kind of uh, what happened in the news and, and, and so on and so forth? Couldn't agree more with uh, what you said. And, and just um, uh, remembering one of the meetings I had on, I think, Thursday, not going to mention the name, but it was a... Uh, and following CTA, 
And just like you said, Niels, you know, the markets have the same expectations, the trades have the same expectations. And as a result of that, we trade them all in the same way. And I would have thought that should kind of be like, you know, the default common knowledge, so to say, but I met the CTA and they very deliberately traded different, different systems, different parameters on, on the market. So they had a system that was called select and then that select system will only trade um, certain energy markets in a certain way. And then they have a select plus system, which trades, you know, some of the acts in a different way. It's just, well, interesting, but not for me. You know, it's, yeah, it's really, we're going backwards, researching, evolving away from the truth. Uh, yeah. uh, you know, it's, it's just really kind of funny when people will say, you know, I think we had a question uh, a few weeks ago or last week, uh, what is your edge? How would you describe your edge? Right, yeah. It's very sad. I trade all markets the same way. I have a fixed universe. Oh my gracious. I mean, how, how can this be the case? How can this not, these common sense, these, uh, normal statistical concepts of needing to trade all the markets the same way, needing to have a fixed universe. Uh, how can this just, how can we even claim that that could be such a, an edge only through the mistakes of others? It's sad. 1983, you would think some of those principles and uh, trend following commandments are uh, embedded in everybody's knowledge, but it's just a sad situation. They're not, they're not. They're not. Well, you know, sometimes the most obvious isn't what people gravitate to, right? Because they think it's just too too good to be true or too simple to to be good. Um, you know, the hard part is actually to 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 do it and to stick with it and to defend it. Um, so, um, yeah, yeah, interesting. Now, what about um, what about social media this week, uh, Jerry? You. Uh, were you active on social? We were probably not paying too much attention, Morris and I, since we were running around, um, putting our best foot forward in in Miami. But um, what what happened in in that area? Not a lot of great stuff going on this week. Uh, I certainly could figure out a way to take seemingly trivial and ideas and turn them into good tweets that people kind of like because I have trend following followers and they like to hear about trend following. So by far and away, the biggest tweet was from a Forbes magazine article, just talking about trend following and how, and how great it is. Uh, just a cheerleader type uh, tweet, um, quote, it shouldn't work, yet the record is robust. The momentum factor has proven robust over 200 years, out of sample and across markets and geographies. Roughly, it may deliver a return about 10% higher than the market per year based on history. So this one just skyrocketed to number one. <laughs> Not sure why. Just uh, Jerry has uh, given us some encouragement in, the, in this uh, sort of bad period for trend-following stocks or diversified or whatever. So, um, what, was yeah, they, what, what were they basing the article on? Did they have a particular piece of research they were referring to or...? Yeah, there was some research and somebody's research. Okay. The the 10% higher than the market per year, I'm not sure. Maybe I should be more responsible and confirm some of these numbers and some of these ideas people put out. It seems a little high, but um, yeah, it's encouraging. Absolutely. Encouraging piece. Yeah, great stuff. Yeah. What else were liked and loved in social media land? 
Well, particularly one of the things that I kind of gets me going is um, when I perceive that people are sort of uh, coming up with ideas that are a little dubious, but have a tendency to reinforce their own business model. I guess we, I could be accused of the same thing maybe, but um, yeah, the idea back again was this silly idea about market timing. I never really read too much about market timing. I don't even know what market timing is necessarily. I know we've talked about it. It's, um, <clears throat> I read it mostly from people who don't like it and who don't agree with it. I never really see too much like someone advocating market timing. Once again, I'm not sure I know what it is. Right. It's not trend following. And this is the point I was trying to make. Um, market timing does not equal trend following. And I, but I think these people, they know that, but they seem to not be bothered by the confusion that they sow with these ideas. So I think it's, um, and I think, you know, one of the, even uh, anything other than <clears throat> buy and hold, one of their claim, uh, one of the frequent claims is, well, even if you got out or if you follow the trends or if you did the market timing thing, you know, when do you get back in? I mean, who knows? How can you figure it out? So don't even bother. Uh, so I think now is a very good opportunity to sort of look at that. Like, unless you stayed completely long through that big sell-off at the end of the year, you know, you are very confused now. I mean, I know I'm confused. Yeah. And all I have is to follow my systems. I have an edge because uh, my stocks, I look at the single stocks and the chart patterns, the charts look much different than the S&P. And so I can just follow the system, buy the breakouts, and stay short until those turn into losses. So I know what, I'm, what I'm, my game plan is, but I do think that unless you're just so, totally buy and hold without any regard for risk control and reducing positions and getting in line with the trend, you would be very, very confused as to how to get these stocks back on. How do I, when should I put on these positions? How should this go? And so we have the answer to that, which is available for everyone, which is uh, looking at some decent uh, trend analysis for all the stocks. I mean, I think that's a great point to bring up because, I mean, you know, there's one part of it that just talks about, you know, market timing from a, you know, when do I buy and sell these stocks? But just also uh, in general, if you uh, certainly a lot of the people that we met uh, at these conferences, when they talk about trying to time trend following, I mean, when should I buy? When should I, you know, get out? And um, and, and we actually leading into the conference um, did an analysis just looking at every single major drawdown as defined as more than 25% in our fully leveraged program and minus 12.5% from a uh, from the last peak in our institutional version of it. Um, and the last time we had, to, we actually updated this study was in 2012 because that happened to be the last time we were in a drawdown of that magnitude. And And you look at these you know, recoveries. We've only had 11 uh, of these in, in 35 years since this, this particular strategy uh, began trading. Um, so it's like every three years. But in this case, it's, we've, we've had six years in between, maybe because some of the improvements we've made, I don't know. Um, but it's just so interesting. I mean, you the, 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 the recovery periods, how quickly they can be. And so it's so difficult, I think, for investors, especially with a strategy like, like trend following to to even think about timing it. And we certainly on our side, you know, gave up many years ago trying to time even our own type of uh, uh, investing style. So um, 
I don't think any investors would would have a, an edge in, in 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 doing that, except for the fact that I I always think that it's a better idea to or better idea to buy these strategies in a drawdown if you believe in the long term track records, of course. That's what I wanted to add yeah. with that timing. It's probably odds are it's a good good moment in time to buy to buy done. Yeah, I mean, any trend follow that's been in a in a drawdown uh, for for a while. I mean, in our case, it's only been a year, so it's not even a long drawdown. But it's actually the average. I mean, if if we look at the eleven previous drawdowns or ten previous drawdowns we've had of this magnitude, it's exactly twelve months on average. Now, of course, some were shorter and some were a lot much much longer, but on average, twelve months. And then you just if you just look at what the recovery has been, say three years after your drawdown finishes, I mean, it's extraordinary how these strategies tend to recover. So much to say on this, but one of the things that I use as one of my logical reasons not to trade indices is that you're trying to time another system. Because the S&P is, is a system, it's mm. rules-based. And my opinion, that's why it does so well, because it's even if it's a silly bunch of rules, not a sophisticated rules, maybe it has a little trend involved in it. It's adding to stocks that are doing better. It's reducing its weighting of stocks that, that do poorly. It still is a systematic approach, and it beats discretion. It's hard to beat it. Um, but it, once again, I think w to some degree it is trend-following another system, and I think, ah, I can't stand it. But, uh, yeah, I think um, we did a little bit of research on our track record and other famous, uh, or I'm not famous, but CTA, famous <laughs> CTA track of, records. Of course you're famous, Eric. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> and... Uh, it just confirmed that there was no advantage waiting for drawdowns, waiting for negative months. It was always the right time to buy. It's a positive system. It's a positive game that we play. And so you should always be buying. Maybe uh, <clears throat> base your purchases on your own personality, a million a month for 12 months rather than all your 12 million at once or whatever your personality is. But mathematically, uh, it's always a good time to invest. Yeah, it's funny when I uh, when I joined Don, um, one of the things that uh, um, that Bill Don, the founder, uh, would always be quoted for for and and say is that, you know, of course the best time to invest in trend following is at the bottom of a drawdown. The second best time is today, and and that's exactly the same uh, as as you say. I mean, you know, you just have to have some of it, and don't try to be too clever about your entry point. And the only logical <clears throat> reason to not do that, it's perfectly reasonable, I suppose, is just to say it's no longer a positive game. Right. It's no longer what it was. That's good. Make that claim. Have your proof. Line it all up. Tell us why that's the case. And this time is different. Um, <clears throat> that's fine. But that's the only thing that you can say. Yeah. Absolutely. What else did um, did you have lined up for us uh, from your tweets? Well, I sent uh, you guys an article yeah. from Hedge Nordic, which I haven't had uh, time to um, really go through and like I'd like to. So maybe next week yeah, we we'll should all try and hit that harder. Yeah. Um, there was one. Um, quote in there that I really liked, of course, I'm beating a dead horse, uh, <laughs> trading, trading the stock constituents makes more sense in trading indices 
the dispersion you get from looking at trends at an industry level, sector level, or factor level is greater than an index. We really push where we think there is diversification to be found. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's who was that? Was that Harold who had that quote? I don't think okay. that was Harold. Okay. Um, but yeah, it's more more on that. Yeah. Uh, I love these. Um, hedge fund roundtables. Yeah. I'd like to be in one one of these days if anybody is out there. Sure. I have been invited, but uh, hopefully one of these days. Um, it's like our little roundtable we have every week. Yeah. And uh, Maybe we should do a trend-following online summit and we should get a lot of our peers on the call. You know, we can do mm. this. I like yeah. it. Yeah. Okay. Great stuff. Uh, what else? Yeah, just one more. I'll just... Um, sort of a piggyback on what I think Moritz was saying earlier today um, about these markets having the same expectation. And yeah, trend following is this magic formula that takes sort of buy and hold markets uh, that don't really maybe look good on a historical basis and then turns them into profitable markets and we, you get the diversification. So one of my friends had uh, something on his website, quote of the day. And you're like, okay, cool, let's hear this. Gold pays no dividends or interest. The only way to value gold is to measure its supply and demand. This makes gold a commodity. Some say gold is a hedge against inflation. It is not. I mean, you know, come on. So I was just thinking that this is a really slow day, and that's the best you can do. Your quote of the day is bad-mouthing poor old gold. <clears throat> but it's like all commodities. When you trend follow them, they add profits, they add diversification. It's magic. Well, it's not magic. It's just an, a way to trend following allows maximum diversification. does not matter if those markets were historically profitable buy and hold. <clears throat> does it matter if they're out of business? Does it matter if they no longer exist? Riding the trends is a, is a safe way of getting more diversification into your portfolio. And I think we just got to continue to, you know, or let's get some good questions in here and say, I know that's not true, and here's why. Please defend yourself. One way or the other, I'm going to keep preaching the same thing. Absolutely. Now, uh, I'm going to go uh, over. We have a few questions, which is great. And by the way, um, if you have a question, uh, do send them either by email to info at toptradersonplug.com or you can tweet uh, one of us. I personally, I have to say, I uh, don't follow Twitter so much, so I might miss it. So if you want to make sure, then send it by email. They will definitely make sure we get it uh, on air. Um, but while we do the questions, maybe, uh, Moritz, you can think a little bit about sort of your main takeaways from the conference in Miami, and I'll I'll do the same because I think it's always good to give a little bit of sort of instant feedback to people who follow this space, um, you know, as our memories are still relatively uh, fresh uh, on, on what happened. Now, the first question's we have questions today from uh, Samuel, from Michael, and from uh, Francois. And um, Samuel, first of all, thank you very much for your kind comments. Uh, they are definitely noted and appreciated. I'm going to go straight to the first question you had, um, and um, and it's it, it goes like this. My main question uh, this week is regarding costs. Given a certain level of volatility chosen or contracts traded over time, perhaps round turns per million, what is a standard CTA cost hurdle rate in order to turn a true profit? I'm not interested in the cost of running the business, but simply the trading cost based on execution and brokerage implementation. Um, yeah, so let's talk about um, 
let's talk about cost. Incidentally, um, something that um, that I spend a little bit of time um, also uh, talking about uh, with our team when I was uh, in our offices uh, um, before I went to Miami. So, anyone want to venture, um, Moritz? Uh, do you want to venture in and talk a little bit about what cost to expect execution clearing from the type of trading you do on a uh, on a yearly basis? Yeah, sure. Very happy to do that. So the way I look at costs is you have those hard, unavoidable costs, which are execution commissions, clearing commissions, and exchange fees. And the way we trade with futures contracts, that's a cost per lot, right? So that is a cost that will scale with your round turns per million, your trading frequency and all that. And then you have a, you know, kind of like a soft cost block, which is market impact, slippage, bid offer, those type of things. Um, which by order of magnitude is much larger than the execution clearing exchange fees. Because, you know, if you're, if you're always crossing bid offer, you're paying a tick, maybe sometimes two ticks, you have slippage and market impact that can easily be easily be like, you know, 20, 30, $40 uh, per lot. It's not that in my case, but it, it can be right. And sometimes even worse than that. So the way I trade with the volatility that I'm looking at and the trading frequency, um, there is about a 2.5% per year impact on on the portfolio. Great. And that is roughly to give maybe a, an answer to, I mean, what should, so, and of course you have more volume than, than Samuel will have, but in general, uh, what is your expected uh, cost per Per lot, um, and they, you know, don't have to mention your specific cost. But what what do you see in terms of ranges of costs for for contracts nowadays on your side? Oh, so um, the the execution commissions they may be you know between fifty cents and a dollar fifty, sometimes you know, a bit higher, sometimes you know two two and a half dollars. Put it that way. Clearing is another buck uh, on average, and then maybe fifty cents to a dollar in exchange fees. Yeah. yeah. So. It, it just depends on your brokerage relationship, how much you trade, um, how much volume you're putting through, the way you trade, whether that's electronic, whether you're using, using the desk, the broker desk, and you submit um, orders to them for them to execute, that will all have an impact. Yeah. Anything to add uh, to that, Jerry? I think it's very important to track the cost of the theoretical and the actual. That's how, what we call it, and we track those costs for 30 years. Um, and I like to do this sort of negative performance table as it relates to uh, my cost per month. Um, the, the computer said I made 3%, but I only made 29 So let's keep track of that and see what uh, the slippage and the commissions and the execution cost us. Um, I look at it on a per-trade basis as well. Um, in terms of the ATR. So for me, everything starts with the ATR, my average win, my average loss, my average trade. The cost of trading is, is a quarter of an ATR, a tenth of an ATR, and sort of build all of that in and <clears throat> your research. And then hopefully it, uh, you build in enough uh, with uh, the medium to long-term trend following that most of us do we're going to look pretty darn good um, as compared to um, shorter term trading or trend following. And I'm very impressed and amazed by 
short-term traders who have to absorb this cost on every trade. And if you took out those costs, oh, we could all make a ton of money probably trading very short term. It gets really dicey when you add them back in. So uh, congratulations to the short-term guys who can not only make profit, uh, but they have a, overcome a higher hurdle than the long-term guys. Yeah, no, I think that's uh, those are great points. Um, so to answer your question, Samuel, on our side, we um, so as as Jerry alluded to, there are different ways and different jargon in our industry uh, to determine how active uh, you are as a trader. And 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 the term that is often used is how many round turns do you do per million dollars you you manage, and. Um, and 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 you know a round turn is basically a buy and a sell, uh, so a, an open and a close of that contract. That's the what I refer to as a round turn. And so in our case, as a long-term trend follower, we probably don't do much more on average than a thousand round turns per million per year. And that means is like uh, Moritz was saying, if if you're paying roughly two and a half dollars for a buy and two and a half dollars for a sell, that's five dollars per round turn. So in our case, five dollars per round turn, a thousand round turns per year makes our sort of commission burden on a yearly basis about half a percent. So 0.5% uh, is what we have to absorb in terms of pure execution and clearing cost. Then of course there are some other costs as, as Moritz was saying. Um, and and you can start to calculate as much as best you can uh, in terms of slippage, et cetera, et cetera. We don't have a lot of slippage on our side. We have an incredibly experienced uh, team of of traders, um, so that uh, helps us to keep slippage down to uh, a minimum. But uh, great question. And by the way, I happened to meet um, someone uh, in Miami who had been on the podcast a, a while ago, so a manager in the short-term space, and he's doing 25,000 round turns per million per year. Uh, he's still making money. So as Jerry says, you know, great, great job to be able to do that. But in his case, if he can lower the cost of, of uh, execution and clearing, it has a huge positive impact on on his net return. Um, so there's a lot of, I'm sure there's a lot of pressure on on that side for, for the short-term guys. Samuel has a, a second question. And he says, in listening to the podcast for almost five years, so you must really have been one of the the first listener of Top Trader. So I really appreciate that, Samuel. Um, now, a frequent and com uh, and a confident saying is, your biggest drawdown is always ahead of you. Why is, this, why is this the case and common belief among trend followers? Do you believe this to be true uh, of all investment strategies? Is it simply a function of uncertainty and preparing the worst uh, that we should? should believe in in this statement so i'm going to start with you jerry um it is true we often say your worst drawdown is always ahead of you why do we do that hmm, probably to be ultra conservative risk managers and not to kid ourselves that the back test is gospel and this is what it's going to look like and as soon as we tick below the worst drawdown on the back test we know that the system is no longer good we can close up shop we're done. And I think uh, it's just, just the way the numbers work out. There's a lot of future ahead, and we may have a worse drawdown than we've seen historically in the back test or in our experience. But I'm sure that someone out there had the worst drawdown their first year trading down 75% and 
and came back, and they probably will never have another drawdown that large. But it's just a good way of uh, being real about the, what to expect from the markets, and that is you can't, you don't know what to expect. So expect it may get worse. I have two follow-up questions for you, Jerry. Well, I, one is more common. You talk about drawdown. In theory, we could talk about drawdowns in equities. And I remember that Amazon started out its life with a 94% drawdown from its high. So so you kind of hope that they definitely don't have their worst drawdown ahead of them. That would be um, very painful. But secondly, um, and more serious, could the same be said about your best year? Could you say the same thing that, you know, theoretically your best year should be ahead of you as well? Yes, I think so. Yeah, yeah, why not? Absolutely. Notwithstanding the fact that history, it looks like um, for most of the traders who've been around a long time, uh, CTAs and the famous um, hedge funders, they, as time goes on and they raise more money, mm-hmm. they've had tremendous success, 90%, 100% years, whatever. Uh, I had a 60% year that they build these businesses and reality kicks in and they say, let's try to make 12. <laughs> let's don't have the drawdown. So it's a business decision, but from a numbers point of view, return risk, um, yeah, there's no reason we can't. Uh, and I think we will. I mean, we'll end up, as long as we stick to what we know, we will end up being uh, repaid handsomely for these uh, bad performance years in the future. I firmly believe that we'll get back to more of a normal trailing 12-month return. Yeah, absolutely. What about you, Mart? Anything you want to add to this? Yeah, I, I agree with that. I think all the best and all the worst things are ahead of us. Your best day, your worst day, your best month, your worst month, your worst drawdown, your, you know, most successive up days, most successive down days. Reason being is, you know, we have a limited number of limited data set, limited sample size historically, but theoretically an infinite sample size going forward. Now we're not going to be around forever on that planet, right? But if you just assume that you're going to be trading that for another thousand years, then it'll become almost a statistical certainty, not a guarantee, it's, you know, likely that you will have your best year in the future and you will have your worst order in the future. And this is why I say it kind of like also then portrays that conservative message. Most of the time it's only about the worst drawdown. Nobody asks about, do you think your best year? Never heard that question. Actually, I'd like to hear that, but never came up yet. It's always about that worst drawdown. So yeah, it's probably, probably going to be in the future. And it keeps us keeps us attentive and good risk managers. But I can only look at that from, you know, in that statistical sense that I just described. Given the fact that Jerry often tweets um, that we should love our losers, that must mean that we also have our best drawdown ahead of us, I imagine. Now, from my side, I would just add, uh, Samuel, that one thing I noticed, and I, I completely agree with both Jerry and, and Moritz on, on this point, but um, but the way to look at it, I mean, you would think, of course, that look at you know a firm like ours, we've been in business, this is our 45th year in business. So you would think, and we've had a, you know, we've had a big drawdown uh, about 12 years ago, and um, 
And you'd like to think that that was the worst drawdown. You'd like to think you're never going to get back to that level with the innovation that you make and so on and so forth. Um, and we're not a firm like, as, as Jerry was explaining, some firms tend to lower their leverage so they can manage more money and so on and so forth. But because we don't collect a management fee, we're not in the business of being asset gatherers. We're here to make money for our clients, first and foremost. And um, But I did notice that back in 2013, many of the firms uh, that, that we often talk about, um, you know, had been around for a long time, 20, 30 years. But 2013 came around and a lot of the worst drawdowns that these firms had, had seen over 20 or 30 years actually were, were was breached and, and, and by a, a quite a big margin. In some cases, you know, you know, an extra 50% uh, more in terms of drawdown. In some cases, an extra 100% more. So so there is some truth to, to, to this that you should always expect that it could get even worse. But I also agree with everything that's been said that we should also expect that we could have our best year ahead of us. And of course, with innovation, you would like to think, and I think that's a fair expectation that, that we do learn and improve and become better at uh, managing the downside because that's one thing as a trend follower we don't control the upside so we don't worry too much about how much money we can make but we do to some extent control the risk and that's why we, we often hear Moritz and Jerry and I talk a lot about the risk management side of what we do because that is where we have some level of influence uh, and of course we, we we hope that that translates into uh, you know quote unquote better drawdowns than 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 what we've seen but great question very relevant thank you for that uh, Samuel then we have a question from Michael and um, he says a new question for the podcast how much has your parameter set of your trading system changed since you started your careers how much does it change during any year or does it always stay the same. Do you experience that parameter sets and trading systems themselves are something sometimes trending, meaning there are years or months when one system or set of parameters performs much better than another and then it performs worse again? Uh, and what do you do about it? So I'm happy to kick this one off because we actually did a little bit of analysis on this. So if we look at a, um, and thanks for the question, by the way, Michael, um, when we look at generic trend following systems, so not something that is 100% identical to what we do, but pretty close, we actually went back 28 years to see what the optimal look back period would have been. And it is quite extraordinary how different one optimal, uh, the optimal look back period for one year to the next. Um, you can have years where your optimal look back period is 40 days and you can have years where it's 240 days and, and anywhere in between. Um, so yes, I mean, parameters uh, and, 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 and settings and look backs, um, if, you, if, you, if you had the foresight of trying to get it right every year, you would see enormous change. Now, clearly, we don't have that benefit uh, to do so. So I think all of us, to some extent, try to be somewhere in that range of where there is a kind of a cluster of profitable uh, parameter settings uh, for each of our systems. Now, this is not, and, and, and Jerry and Morris can explain how they do it. On our side, what we do is we allow the models to have a bit of a 
of a playground to play in, meaning we we don't say you it has to be just a 150-day look-back period as one of the parameters. We actually allow the model to to um, to to change uh, slightly over time. Um, and uh, this is something we've implemented since 2006. Um, does it add value? We believe it does. Um, but it's not like the whole model just has one time frame. We we actually use multiple time frames within each model, uh, so that there is a quite a. We, so we're trying to catch, you know, the the the, the some good uh, look back periods, for example, in this case, but the same with other parameters uh, every year, not knowing where it's going to be. Um, so so that's one way of doing it. Um, I'm sure there are other ways. Uh, and and so yes, to answer your other question, um, you know, do these things uh, change and do they sometimes trend? I wouldn't say they trend, but they can certainly move in certain directions. If your longer term timeframes become more profitable uh, over a certain period of time, then in our case, certainly we would gravitate towards that. Vice versa, if it becomes more medium term, we would gravitate towards that. But over time, not 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 over over a month or two for sure. Um, but that's how we do it, um, uh, and and I think most managers, um, you know, have more than one or two or three timeframes. Although we started out um, back in the day with just using uh, less than a handful of different parameter sets per 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 market. So, how about you, Moritz? How do you how do you deal with timeframes and so and parameters? I have many many different timeframes. Certainly more than a handful. But they they do not adjust or amend themselves automatically. So I will have to do that manually, look at the systems, and I would have to change them. Now, what I would add is that um, I can't remember the last time I changed the look back period. I mean, the way I came up with them is I wanted to be diversified across a number of different time frames. I don't want any of those time frames to be over optimized like on a heat map and just you know pick the pick the best performer there kind of like has to be in that sweet spot but for me most of the work and most of the the most important thing i believe is to uh to have good exit strategies getting into the trend at a certain point in time that you know we all do that there there may be small deviations and differences how we get into the trade maybe Maybe, you know, you get triggered by a high or get triggered by the settlement, then you get in with the next open or maybe with the next close, you know, all of those kind of like different entry methodologies, they may have an impact. I think there is reason to diversify across those as well. And then the most important part to me is the definition of the exit strategies, of which there could be a couple. And I guess this is where most of the parameters have changed ever so slightly, maybe in the last couple of years, with you know some new ideas, some new you know, beliefs in risk management. Um, around it's around that where where I see more dynamic. Great. How about you, Jerry? Well, I think uh, nothing's more important than getting in the trade. You can't miss a good trend. So, whatever your parameters are, make sure that they can eventually be satisfied. Uh, if so you don't miss a good trend and as soon as you get in you're waiting and waiting it'll turn into a loss but uh, you still got to get in uh, but definitely from uh, the turtle days where we traded uh, shorter term uh, the most important thing we did 
was in early 2000s, recognized we had to continue to uh, trade longer term and make our look back periods longer term. So that is the biggest change that we've had to go through. Um, I like what both of you guys said. I agree with both. Um, I have to figure out how I can agree with both and then implement both at the same time. I do what I am more aligned with Moritz, but I like, as I've said before on the podcast, I like the systematic way of choosing the systems. Uh, and I know that if I implemented a, a that sort of approach, I'm pretty sure my parameters would change almost never. Uh, but I do think that that is a good way of doing it and looking at it. Uh, I think the correlation amongst the different parameter sets and systems is misleading sometimes in that uh, we're all going to be short crude in 2014 at 90 on the way to 20 something. My systems, every one of them and every one of your systems. So at some point, the correlation is really reaching 80, 90 percent. Uh, we're all correlated because we're all on that trend and it's kicking ass. Um, but then as the exits happen, oh, much different P&Ls. Uh, as it rallies, I get out of some, and then it goes back to the lows again. So that is something to keep in mind that um, when we say that all the systems make the same amount of money over time, they don't make the same amount of money on all the big trades. That's why we think the exits are so important to diversify and not uh, go all in for it one exit that can make you look like a hero or make you look uh, not not so good. So m diversifying those exits is pretty important. Yeah, I think those are really, really important points. And, and I also agree with, uh, with, with what you uh, both of you say. I will just add, uh, Michael, to, to, the, to the question also is that uh, on our side, we, we use two different approaches within trend following. So we definitely see as, as Jerry explains, differences in, you know, in the short term um, between the two models in a certain market, et cetera, et cetera. So, so that's another way of, of diversification um, to, to be aware of. But, but you know, our, our experience is also that, uh, you know, entries are relatively easy to spot, whether you use moving average crossover, breakout, time series momentum, whatever they're called. But, you know, where you how you get your exits uh, really determines how much of the trend you can capture, and so they are they're super important um, to uh, you know to work on those. But thanks for the question, Michael. Appreciate it. Final question for today is from Francois. Um, another question from uh, Francois, and uh, so thanks for that. This is a question that might be a little bit difficult for us to answer, but anyways, we will always try. The question goes like this. In the world of systematic trading, there is one company that inspire admiration, even though uh, it is very difficult to understand what it does. Yes, I'm talking about the mystical, uh, or the mystical, I should say, the mystical Renaissance technologies. Could you guys please share what you know about Rentic? I have to say, I don't know much, so maybe I'll pass that straight on to you guys um, if you've come across. Uh, well, what I will say, what I will say, uh, Francois, to this question, when you, a few years back, so obviously they have the Medallion Fund, which is the one that I think most people refer to, even though it's not really open to investors, it's, they're now managing their own money. Um, and, and by the way, there's often been talked about 
the uh, the issue about fee com- you know fee pressure on 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 managers but i remember back in the day when it was still open to new investors um, they were charging 5% management fee and 46% performance fee and they still had no problem in attracting investors because of course investors were interested in the net return so just something to think about there when it comes to fees but what i will say is that from memory and i have not looked this up but they launched a quasi trend following type fund a few years ago and if memory serves me right i don't know that their trend following fund is any better than what the three of us are doing and many of our peers are doing so i think there's a big difference when you talk about rentec if you talk about their medallion fund or you talk about their trend following uh, approach so i just want to throw that in there but jerry moritz um what can you share about um, the amazing Rentec? Not much. Uh, must agree that they, I find them amazing. Um, <laughs> they're not taking anybody's money. That's the problem. But um, I mean, everybody that, that has worked there is, as far as I, I hear, contractually prohibited from speaking about what they do. So it's kind of like a very close box, difficult to uh, to get a handle on what what they're doing from the filings and you know every once in a year or, or at the end of the year there's kind of like a, an update somebody spoke about the performance they're almost always up i think they're always up <laughs> and um they trade long short stocks given their background heavy in math um i i just you know it's speculation on my part what they trade it's not trend following um something else i just don't know but it's great yeah i mean uh, i assume uh it's some sort of market making with futures, cash, and options. Very math intense and good for them. I, it is interesting. Uh, I do remember investing uh, personally in, uh, I believe, the funds that you mentioned. There was a Renaissance Institutional Futures Fund, which uh, no longer exists, I believe. And uh, <clears throat> there was a Renaissance, there is a Renaissance Institutional Equities Fund. I think I was invested in both. I'm no longer invested in the equity, institutional equity fund. And it was more of a uh, normal, you know, system, systematic, uh, longer-term approach than the sort of uh, medallion, which is... Uh, I do remember one fun story about um, that. You know, those guys are just on a different planet than trend-following um, and I do remember a video, a couple of videos on YouTube recently where Jim Simons was really funny. I sat down with some guy to talk to him about his methodology and the math and all that stuff. And, and Jim explained a little bit how it works. And the guy goes, okay, I, I get it. I understand now. And Simon said, no, you don't. You don't understand at all because there's only like one other person in the world that really understands what we do. So I thought that was pretty funny. I know he's on record as saying trend following doesn't work um, anymore. I took that to kind of mean that um, maybe risk adjusted the sharp, you know, is certainly below what medallion does. So why bother? But I do remember another funny story when I was invested in the futurist fund, there was a obviously a majority, I think, trend component. And there was a mean reversion component as well. And uh, they had uh, a period, a month, where they lost a substantial sum of money, more than they wanted to, and it was due to this mean reversion. And uh, the explanation I remember was, well, we just have to expand our 
parameters more. Uh, I think that's just kind of funny how it all always works. Um, your biggest mean reversion problem is always in the future, kind of like our biggest drawdown is always in the future. Uh, <clears throat> if X happens, we will do a counter trend mean reversion trade, but then you have to always leave open a possibility that uh, you may have to change that parameter in order to get that same mean reversion profit. So one of the big advantages of trend following is we don't really have to look at the markets in that way. Absolutely. And I, I was just Googling while we while you were talking, Jerry, the medallion fund, and there's an article here from last summer, and it says uh, the medallion fund available only to Renaissance employees has generated returns of about 40% a year since inception in 1988. And that is after a 5% management and a 44% performance fee. So, I mean, I would say if you're an aspiring trader and you, you're good at math, you should get a job at Rentec just for the uh, just for the opportunity to invest in that fund. That should secure your uh, pension, uh, you know, without having to do much many other things great stuff um moritz a week in miami busy week uh well you were in new york as well so uh but context was one of the conferences we both attended um comes at, at an interesting time after a uh, difficult year for many alternative strategies um what was your what was your takeaway? So the broad takeaways, and I was thinking about that, is um, it's not all doomed for CTAs. That's the positive thing. You know, after 2018, uh, you may have expected people to be completely bummed out about it. Um, I've heard a couple of times that this is now the time to hold on to it, given the or people's expectations about future developments and, you know, economic developments, geopolitical developments, none of us know what's going to be coming down the pike there, but um, um, they're, they're holding on to it. That's when I've kind of like got, got the feeling. Um, what I also observed is that there's a lot of emerging managers still getting into the space and there's many more professional seed firms. Um, working with those. So I see a lot of activity there. So if people have a unique strategy, something that has a great edge is, is different to existing things, I believe this may be a good time to get them up. And I've heard a couple of times it's um, like with respect to all the, say, generic, naive, smart beta factor type driven strategies, kind of like got the feeling that people think, well, that's a bit overdone, that's over. And maybe traditional active management is due for a comeback. I'm not sure about that, but that's what I've heard more than twice. Um, good takeaways. Thanks for sharing. I mean, I think my takeaways were uh, a couple of ones. Some, um, so I, I um, uh, had the opportunity to also do a podcast recording while I was there with two of the largest uh, pension funds in the US. Um, so people should definitely look out for that interview when it comes up in a couple of weeks. But I think together they have almost $400 billion or $350 billion on the management and a, and a sizable allocation to alternatives, including uh, CTAs. And, 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 you know, and I was frankly a little bit expecting um, some negative voices uh, from them, given 
the challenges we've seen in this space in the last uh, 10 years, really, compared to uh, the traditional space. But but it was the complete contrary. Um, they were incredibly committed uh, to having these uh, strategies in their portfolio. They fully understand the value of them. They fully appreciate why 2018 wasn't uh, a good year. It was not expected to be a good year when you look at what uh, a trend-following system uh, is doing. Um, so I thought that was very, very, uh, it was very good to hear that there are uh, investors out there who, um, you know, understand um, perhaps the strategy um, like like we do uh, in that sense. Uh, so I think that was uh, interesting. Um, I um, what was interesting that also came up during uh, my week in in Florida meeting generally investors was. A lot of them, because there had been a lot of talk about uh, smart beta products and 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 low fee products, uh, flat fee products. Uh, the 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 overall uh, conclusion from many of these investors uh, was really that where they get their best performance is still from the managers that charge full fees. And I think that's another interesting uh, conclusion, which may not ever get to the press and get the headlines, uh, but a little bit like back to the medallion where you're getting a fantastic return despite paying, you know, uh, fees that dwarf our fees, right? But but still, you know, the, the managers who know what they do and continues to put the numbers uh, on the table, why should they not be uh, deserving uh, to get their their fees? We can discuss the okay the shade of fees, whether it doesn't have to be necessarily the way it was in the eighties, but but paying normal fees uh, is something that certainly those investors that I came across, um, you know, said that that's actually also where they get the best performance. So I thought that was an interesting uh, takeaway uh, as well. And 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 overall, a lot of people felt that. Sure. I mean, after 10 years of QE, where you understand that that is that drives up uh, traditional asset classes like equities, like bonds, um, you know, what if we're going to have 10 years of QT or, or Q something else or whatever they call it, but just the kind of the opposite environment? Uh, why wouldn't you, why wouldn't it be that, that what we do could be the best performing uh, part of your portfolio for the next 10 years if you have, you know, essentially flat or or maybe even negative returns uh, in, in the traditional assets. So so I think there is this general openness. I think I think investors have become very well educated in, in many cases. And I, I don't mean broadly speaking, but the people who really are interested in our space, I think they've done a great job in educating themselves as to what role these strategies uh, should play in the portfolio and and um, I, I see a lot of support uh, from their side to this space. So that was some of my ta- key uh, key takeaways. Of course, another key takeaway was, of course, I had a chance. We've often mentioned, uh, well, we've mentioned George a couple of times for his questions on the podcast and and his contribution to creating these minute markers uh, on on that's on the website. Um, so it's easy for for you, the listener, to to find out uh, what we're talking about in each episode. And I did have the pleasure to meet George in person. So that was another highlight from the conference, of course. Um, so, so great stuff. I wouldn't be right if I didn't sort of uh, dissent a tad uh, in, in an expected way that anybody who's watched the podcast knows that I would dissent. Um, 
our role, I would hope that over time, our, uh, our role would uh, change and it would be to manage 90% of the money, not 5% of the money, and that we would take the markets and the systems and the risk control and the inherent qualities and characteristics of trend following into the stock part of everyone's portfolio and uh, that people would understand that uh, this is the only responsible and way of going forward and uh, having a portfolio dominated with uh, long-only, passive, buy-and-hold, traditional methods of dealing with the stock market and 5% allocated to what we do is not the best way to go forward to preserve capital and make a fair amount, a fair sum um, of profit. So I would hope that uh, somehow, magically over time, we would change our failed marketing strategies that have been around in managed futures for since I began in the 80s into something that's uh, more real and more uh, people need what we offer. They need uh, the real crisis alpha is trend following your stocks. Absolutely. And I think that, that that's actually something that did come up uh, also at the conference. And, and that was that people were a little bit concerned. And I have to be careful here because uh, uh, the person who came up with the coined the phrase crisis alpha, I, uh, I have an enormous uh, respect for and, and I, like, uh, I like her a lot. But there were some uh, concerns that when people hear this thing, crisis alpha, which is now associated with trend following and managed futures, that people don't fully understand perhaps what that means. Um, because it doesn't mean that every time there's a crisis, we're going to create alpha. That's what it not means, but that's what it sounds like. And so I do, I do think that that is something that we as an industry maybe need to uh, address address a little bit, so there isn't this, uh, you know, automatic expectation of, you know, positive performance from a trend follower every time the S and P goes down by three or four percent. One way that also came up, one way that maybe we should start uh, educating investors to look at it is maybe to look at at that particular environment if they're trying to to uh, you know have some kind of protection to equities, and we understand why that is is to think more about it as, as some kind of put option where you you won't make money initially. It's not an at-the-money put option. It's a out-of-the-money put option to some extent where clearly our systems have to have some time to adjust and 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 and, and reset the uh, the positions before uh, we can have any expectation of delivering uh, some outperformance. And I also agree with what Jerry says that, of course, our hope and aspiration should be that we should be a much bigger part of any portfolio uh, for for what we do, and um, and it has been highlighted um, also in in an interview I did earlier uh, last year I think it was um, with with another really big pension fund in the U.S. that have to a large extent embraced trend following. I mean, put in I don't know eight nine ten billion dollars into to trend following so very large commitment uh, within their risk mitigation uh, part of their portfolio which makes a lot of sense but they also put a large amount of money into uh, long dated treasuries US treasuries as part of this risk mitigation um, portfolio and that is the the, the 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 one thing and I think a lot of people uh, do that to some extent. They they have bonds to to offset any any wobbles in equities because it's been working well for the last ten years. The correlation between equities and bonds have been kind of perfect uh, for that purpose. But I think we we have to also um, think about the 
um, you know, the risk that that particular uh, offset won't work um, with rates being so low as they are generally around the world, maybe not in the US right now, but generally around the world. And another podcast episode that's going to come up that I will also advertise uh, uh, now is um, a great discussion uh, between some uh, a couple of really interesting uh, volatility guys. Chris Cole, which many people probably know, uh, will, will was part of that discussion. Dan Stone was another uh, one part of that discussion, and um, and Matthew Sargason, uh, the uh, CEO of AHL, uh, another uh, very well respected trend follower. So fascinating discussion points, I think, in general. And uh, as Jerry said, I mean, I hope we will. Um, you know, have a bigger place in, in people's portfolios going forward. You know, I thought you were going to say something slightly different because I know that I, I read sometimes in uh, Twitter and um, <clears throat> these panel discussions that uh, clients are, or in, in traders, uh, traders who uh, are trying to uh, say something negative about uh, long-term trend following will say uh, it's really a shame that uh, the CTAs, the, long, the trend followers, have become more correlated to the stock market. They're they're making money on the upside. This is not what we want right. them to do. Um, so I think it's kind of ironic that my my solution to this is more stocks. Uh, whatever it takes to get inside the, as a business person, let's get inside these portfolios of uh, that's mostly stocks or bonds, and let's provide crisis alpha. Sure, but you're saying more stocks, but you're saying and long and short. And I think it's the and long and short that is so important in that discussion because I couldn't agree more that the long only versus a portfolio of stocks on the long short side, long and short, not long short, but long and short side as a trend follower makes a, a lot of sense. I mean, it really does. But you know, you might have to um, have a managed account where the client says, I get it, I love it, no shorts. Uh, just, just go flat and or right. trend follow the on the long side. So whatever it takes, um, one of my big lessons of my career is that I don't have not done a good job of balancing uh, my passion for doing trend following uh, what I consider to be the right way, but that needs to be tempered by business. And so yeah. AUM. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's sometimes you... Yeah, you can't get people to do exactly how you think it should be done, but if you can just move them a little bit in the right direction, that's a good start. And maybe over time, they will end up seeing it like we do. Um, we can certainly hope. Let me uh, run through some numbers. Now, these numbers, incidentally, Thursday evening was, of course, the end of January. So these numbers will be uh, the January numbers. Um, Friday was, I think, a, overall a quiet day, even though we had non-farm payrolls and all of that uh, good stuff from the US. But I think, I don't know, Overall, probably maybe a slight negative day for trend followers. But anyways, as of Thursday, and that means January numbers, uh, the beta 50 was down 1.83%. SockGen CTA index down 1.99%. Uh, the SockGen trend index down 3.25%. Uh, the SockGen short-term traders index down 1.71%. And the bridge alternative uh, index, the flat fee index down... 4.2%. So clearly not a great start to the year, but let me just remind you, uh, last year it was the complete reverse. Everybody was high-fiving after January, thought that was fantastic. Turned out the year was going to be a little bit more tricky than that. So 
maybe this year will also be uh, the reverse of what January suggests. Um, anything you want to add? I mean, we've had a good long conversation today. Um, and um, and we're going to look a little bit more on the article from uh, Hedge Nordic for next week, maybe, and 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 have our own comments for that. Um, anything else you want to add before we finish for today, this week? Well, I miss not seeing you guys in Miami, and I'm, I'm glad you went. And thanks for the report back. And uh, it's always good to uh, go to things like that and have the fun dinners and the. Uh, interactions with our peers and our colleagues. On that note, Jerry, you know that the next big conference coming up, that's actually going to be in Monaco this year. And yeah. if we can persuade Moritz to uh, attend that one as well, uh, I will be there. Then maybe we will have to meet you in Monaco. Sounds very uh, mm. glamorous, doesn't yes. it? Yes. <laughs> what about you, Moritz? Is Before the jet lag hits completely, anything you want to add? No, I think we're good. We covered a lot of ground today. Um, and uh, looking forward to a to a quiet Sunday afternoon now. <laughs> Happy trading. <laughs> On that note, we're going to wrap up this week's conversation. Hope you enjoyed it. Keep your questions coming. Um, they are fun, they're good, and they are uh, very useful, we find. Uh, just send them to info at toptradersonplug.com or send us a tweet. And if you want to give something back to us, all we ask for is to share this podcast with just one like-minded friend. That is certainly going to help us. From Jerry Martin and me, thank you so much for listening and we look forward to being back with you next week. Thanks for listening to the Systematic Investor Podcast Series. If you enjoy this series, go on over to iTunes and leave an honest rating and review. And be sure to listen to all the other episodes from Top Traders Unplugged. If you have questions about systematic investing, send us an email with the word question in the subject line to info at toptradersunplugged.com and we'll try to get it on the show. And remember, all the discussion that we have about investment performance is about the past, and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies, and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their products before you make investment decisions. Thanks for spending some of your valuable time with us, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Systematic Investor.